This is Public Health Speaks. I'm Olivia Biggs. As our nation continues its slow recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, public health professionals are now assessing the effectiveness of our public health interventions and what can be improved to address current and future health threats. I've seen this social chasm coming for, well, since January of this year, since the vaccines first started being rolled out, because it was clear at that point that many of the people who are offering advice, putting posts up on Twitter, and finally making decisions about how to roll this out, really are stuck in you know, an old model of communication where we focus on trying to identify the right sources of messages. Welcome to Public Health Speaks, a podcast series brought to you by the National Public Health Information Coalition. With each episode, we explore the successes and challenges in public health communications and ways to tackle the most pressing issues facing federal, state, and local jurisdictions. In this episode, we talk with an architect and designer of public health and social change programs who blends empirical research and consumer experience to engage people's imagination and passions in the design and implementation of marketing and communication programs that improve health. Joining me today is Craig LaFay. Craig is the lead change designer for RTI International, an independent nonprofit research institute dedicated to improving the human condition through science-based solutions. For more than 25 years, Craig has been on the leading edge of developing marketing and communication programs to address many public health and social issues. Welcome, Craig. Thank you, Olivia. It's nice to be here. So we'll get right into it. What does the job of a lead change designer entail? It builds on you know, a lot of the experiences you just mentioned that I've had with designing communications and social marketing programs for community, state, and even national level programs around public health issues. So what I essentially do is work with projects, particularly on the level of strategic planning and leadership kind of provide some input and oversight for how marketing and design principles and behavior and social theory is incorporated into how we approach large-scale campaigns and programs, and then focus on individual, organizational, and community-level outcomes as part of our process. And much of your work today, obviously, is focused on social marketing strategies aimed at increasing the uptake of the COVID-19 vaccine. So what are some of the social marketing tools and strategies you find most useful in that type of work? Well, there are several. One is obviously the idea of segmentation. And one of the issues, you know, we've now run head into is the idea of that there are different groups of people out there with different needs, wants, expectations, and value that they perceive or don't perceive with the vaccines. So thinking about how to design messages and design products and services that are relevant to those different groups of people is probably one of the most important things. The second thing is looking at how to incorporate the vaccines and the service delivery points into an integrated program so that we have all these things working together rather than standing as separate legs on a stool. The third thing has been, especially in this time, is rapid 
and iterative testing of program ideas, message concepts, and actual message products so that we can very quickly pivot to different groups of people and to address the different issues that have been coming up around vaccines over the course of the last nine or 10 months. And finally, a lot of engagement of people in the process and not necessarily community leaders and community coalitions as much as it is the individuals who we're trying to uh, talk with and trying to um, increase their rates of adoption and involving them in the development of the program and the messaging so that we come out of the process more quickly and more efficiently with products, services, and messages that will hopefully resonate and work well with them. Now, I've heard you talk about designing for diffusion. What should public health communicators know about this concept, and how can it be used to their advantage as it applies to vaccine acceptance? So the diffusion idea, very briefly, if you imagine a normal distribution, is that there are at least five segments of people who always fall out for any type of innovation, whether that's a technology innovation, whether that's a behavioral innovation, or whether that's a vaccine that has come out. And these five groups of people fall under that normal distribution curve. And when we reach about 50% or the peak of that curve, the characteristics of those groups dramatically change. And we run into what we call the late majority group of people who we can describe as a thumbnail as being very cautious as being very skeptical and risk adverse, who are more interested in seeing how the vaccine has worked out for others rather than listening to opinion leaders and other types of people. These people are also much more sensitive to peer pressure and to social norms, and they also want to minimize the uncertainty of outcomes. And it's this uncertainty which I think is one of the great challenges we have as we move forward into having this late majority, and then finally, small group, about 10% of the population that we would call traditional people who are even more risk adverse and who are more likely to stick to the tried and true ways of getting through life. The movable middle seems to be an elusive population that we as public health communicators, we want to influence. So can you tell us a little bit more about who makes up this group and how can they effectively be engaged? Sure. This this late majority group that I mentioned is probably about 30% of the population, or at this point in time, is really most of the population who we're trying to reach and increase their adoption of vaccines. So considering that they're going to be very skeptical, that they're very sensitive to the peer pressure and the social norms, and that they're trying to minimize uncertainty of the outcomes. I mean, they want almost guarantees that they aren't going to have side effects, that this is going to work, that it is not just people trying to put a needle in their arms. There's also evidence that we should be looking at the emotional drivers much more carefully. And what the research tells us is that, you know, implying fear, implying guilt, implying regret, and the fear of missing out are important. 
and I use the word imply deliberately because it's not that we start creating fear messages in the kind of classic way that public health people do. But I look at advertising that you'll see, for example, the CDC tips program and how they don't have to make fear and guilt and regret the centerpiece of the messaging, but it becomes more of the backdrop for how communicating about quitting smoking or not quitting smoking in the case of tips has affected people. Social networks play a critical role in influencing behaviors. What is your advice on working in these systems to build trust and influence behaviors? And are there any cautions with this? Yes, well, trust is kind of an elusive concept. And I find the best way to think about trust, especially for this group of people who we're talking about, this late majority, is that trust really for them is a decision-making heuristic. You know, if they trust somebody, whatever that person or group says, if they're trusted, is more likely to be remembered and then acted on. So when we're thinking about trust, we're really thinking about how do we position ourselves in a way that people can feel like they can make a decision based on what we're telling them. And then the other thing with trust is that, you know, you have to be able to listen and respond to what we're hearing. And I think that listening part of the equation really is what drives us to think about how do we incorporate people from the community into our planning and into the design process for a campaign of messaging or for how we make decisions about where to put vaccine clinics, how to make distribution more accessible and easier for people to do. Craig, you're a clinical psychologist and a behavior change expert. So has anything surprised you about the social chasm around the pandemic and the COVID-19 vaccine? Well, my short answer is no, I'm not surprised. I've seen this social chasm coming for, well, since January of this year, since the vaccines first started being rolled out, because it was clear at that point that many of the people who are offering advice, putting posts up on Twitter, and finally making decisions about how to roll this out, really are stuck in you know an old model of communication where we focus on trying to identify the right sources of messages. We try to identify the right channel for a message. And then we spend more or less time deciding on how we're going to phrase and how we're going to communicate the messaging around vaccines. And that typically means is that we're going to be very good at getting the early adopters on board. We're going to be pretty good about getting the early majority on board. But we haven't thought ahead and thought through how do we now make this a social movement, if you will, rather than simply an individual level communication and behavioral adoption effort. Craig, here's a question that a lot of us public health communicators might want to know. In your opinion, what are some of the common public health communication mistakes that we're making regarding the messaging around the pandemic and the vaccine as well? Well, I think relying on the source channel message approach to designing our campaigns has been one thing. Obviously, there have been a lot of political or public affairs inputs into how messaging has been shaped over the pandemic 
that influence what we can do. But I think the key thing, again, is that we have not thought about what does this late majority, what are these cautious, skeptical people respond to and will respond to effectively? And why we've been very focused for the last nine months on pushing out the vaccine to people who are more likely to adopt it. We really haven't thought and acted enough about how do we attract this late majority people to our point of view and to thinking about vaccines in a very different way. And in that gap is where we've seen a lot of what I would call counter-marketing or messaging that undermines what we're trying to do in various ways. And most of that is just by appealing again and reinforcing all the uncertainty that these people can find about vaccines, about their impact and effectiveness, and have really kind of created a platform for these late majority people to grab onto. And a lot of them are now holding very strongly to those ideas that they've been exposed to over the last nine months and that we really haven't addressed as fully as we could. And we need to turn our attention to that now. Public health communicators depend on data and empirical research of others. So we want to ask you, what are some of the best and most trusted sources of credible research and data for public health communicators to maintain and have in their resource toolbox? The first things that come to my mind is that CDC does produce a health communication science digest on a monthly basis that does summarize in one place a lot of the recent research that's being done around communication issues, whether it's message design, whether it's programmatic effectiveness, and so on. You know, I wrote a book on social marketing and social change a few years ago, and one of the key objectives I had for that book was to try and incorporate as much of the empirical evidence that we have for what works and what doesn't work when designing health communications and social marketing programs. And then the third thing that comes to mind is just people using Google Scholar somewhat regularly to look for the topics that they're working on. And I always suggest adding the word review to that search so you can quickly see if there's a compilation of the research that you can refer to rather than slogging through every article that might come up for that topic in that search. Craig, I think that was absolutely the correct answer of giving us some resources and it helps us public health communicators fight misinformation and disinformation if we kind of have some resources of where we know we can rely on to get that data. So I appreciate that information. And I just appreciate you joining us today on Public Health Speaks. Craig LaFay, he's the lead change designer for RTI International and uh, had some great tidbits for us today. Thanks again, Craig. All right. Thank you, Olivia. Thanks for listening to Public Health Speaks. Please join us next time as we continue to address important and timely issues relevant to public health communication professionals around the country. If you like the show, please share it with your colleagues. And if you have comments or questions, we'd like to hear from you. 
You can email us at info at nific.org. That's I-N-F-O at N-P-H-I-C dot org. This show is a production of the National Public Health Information Coalition. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.